Last time I preached was at the Bush Disciples Monthly Muster uh, in town. And if you haven't heard that message, I'd really encourage you to get a hold of it and have a listen to it. Um, You can either get it off the net and and have a listen, or you can download it and read it. Or if you don't have access to that or it's all too hard, just let me know and I'll get you a copy to have a listen to. Um, It's all about how the harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. And Jesus said, so pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers out into the harvest field. And then he said, I'm sending you. So he wants us to pray for harvesters and then voila, there's the answer to the prayer. You guys who are actually praying for this are actually the harvesters that he's going to be sending out. All disciples are sent out into the world with a message. So all disciples should have beautiful feet, hey? Yeah? Righto. But something that struck me is that when Jesus sends disciples out, most of us actually have very little idea of what message it is that we have to take with us. Um, But actually, the message that Jesus told us to take is actually very simple. Does anyone remember what that message was from last, last time? The message, yes? Well, that's... Yep, that's, that's, yep, yep. Well, the one that I'm actually talking about was when Jesus actually sent the disciples out and the thing that he said to tell the people is the kingdom of heaven is near. That's all he said. Just tell them the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, that's a message that's filled with hope. It's a message that points to something better. It's a message that that draws us to peace. It sounds really good, the kingdom of heaven is near. That sounds really good, but what does it actually mean? When, when we share with somebody that the kingdom of heaven is near, what are we actually saying? Well, this Easter Sunday, as we worship the risen, crucified one, we find the answer in the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, today as we contemplate the resurrection we ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, reveal to us more of your kingdom. Help us to understand what it means that your kingdom is near. Help us to understand what it is about your kingdom that starts out small but grows out large and inviting. And Lord, bring us into that kingdom of hope, into that kingdom of peace and comfort and salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen. In 1936, um, Arthur Goiterman was writing a poem about the way things were changing so fast in his life and in the world. Now, we sort of think things are changing fast now, but it was for Arthur as well in 1936. And this is his poem. First dentistry was painless then bicycles were chainless and carriages were horseless and many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless, telegraphy was wireless, cigars were nicotineless and coffee, coffee, caffeineless. Soon oranges were seedless, the putting green was weedless, the college boy hatless, the proper diet fatless. Now, motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, our new religions godless. 
complete atheists I actually find to be quite rare because it actually takes a lot of faith to be a fully convinced atheist. I mean, it takes a lot of commitment to believe that all this just happened. Most people believe there's something out there. There's something beyond what we see and know. There's something beyond ourselves. But unless belief is based on truth, unless belief is based on the risen Christ, essentially our religion, our belief, our faith is godless. It's empty and it's useless. Romans 10 shows us the difference between a real saving faith and false hopes that fail. The one real saving faith is faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But there are many false hopes that people prefer to hang their hat on. It's a very modern notion that all paths lead to the same God. And it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're really sincere about it and, and stick with it, then you'll be right with God. A lot of people believe that. But that's a a bit like saying that, well, with traffic lights, as long as I sincerely believe that red means turn the stereo up and green means spin your wheels in reverse, as long as I'm really sincere about that and do that consistently, then everything's going to be okay and um, everything's going to go smoothly for me. I don't think so. I don't think the policeman's going to be too happy with me when with the stereo blaring and the lights turn green and he's parked behind me and I spin my wheels in reverse straight into his bumper, I don't think he's going to be very happy with me. Why? Because despite what I believe, I'm wrong. And when Paul spoke about his own Jewish people and how they had rejected Jesus, he said this. He said, they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Right, They're really keen for God. They're going hard for God. They're doing the very best that they can for God. But they've got it wrong. And it doesn't matter... Sorry. And you can be sincere about something and be sincerely wrong. Jesus said, I'm one of the ways, I'm one of the truths and you'll find life with me and um, doesn't matter which way you go, you'll get to heaven. Is that what Jesus said? Does someone want to correct me? I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to me except, so no one comes to the Father except through me. Now that sounds like a very exclusive claim, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like a very tolerant and accepting thing to say. To Well, it sounds like an exclusive claim because it is. It's a very exclusive claim and Jesus made it. Jesus wanted to be very clear with us that he is the only way to God. And he's very clear with us because he loves us and he wants us to get it right. He he doesn't want us to get distracted by false hopes pinned on false gods. And so to be religiously wrong is a false hope that no matter how sincere we are, fails us in the end when we really need it. A second false hope is to trust in our own goodness, uh, our own ability to be a good fella or whatever. 
nearly every single funeral that I've done, when I meet with the family before the funeral, they always want to tell me how nice this person who's died has been. They want to tell me how you know they're a really good person. Um, and, and they just go on and on. And it's like they're trying to convince themselves that their loved one has earned a pass mark with God. And they'll tell me how that they never hurt anybody, they always did the right thing. No, he didn't have any time for religion. Yeah, if you talk to him about God, he'd get angry. Yeah, he did drink a fair bit and swore a fair bit and had a few fights and had a foul mouth, but he was a really good fella. And, and even in spite of all this, they're trying to convince themselves he's earned the pass mark. This is the great prevailing hope of most Australians. Yeah, I don't have any time for God, but as long as I do the right thing and don't hurt anybody, unless I deserve it, of course, uh, then he'll let me into heaven. That's their hope. But it's a false hope. You see, this is really trying to live by the law. Now, if you live by the law, most people picture it as like a balance scale, you know, the thing hanging down with the beam across and you've got two fans and, and you do something bad and it's like, well, I'll put a sinker on this side and the scales go boop like that. And, but, but if I do enough good stuff over this side, then, then it'll level everything up and, and that'll be good, right? Most people think that it works that way. And so provided my good outweighs my bad, then everything's going to be all right. Now, the problem with that is when I do something good, we've got like the balance scale. That's like putting a helium molecule on this side of the balance scale. Now, that's very light. Actually, it floats, so it doesn't really do much at all. But when I do something wrong, when I sin, it's not like putting a sinker on this side. It's actually like the pan gets screwed down to the floor. Okay, So the, this side of the balance, the, the sin side, is screwed down to the floor. And it doesn't matter how much good stuff I put on this side of the balance, nothing is ever going to bring those scales back into balance by me doing good stuff. Nothing's going to tip that balance in my favour. Because the bad, sin, is actually a rejection of God. And here's something that might surprise you that to try and do good, to try and balance the scales up again, is actually more sin. Now, that might surprise you, me saying doing good stuff is sin. But it's the motivation. If I'm trying to do good stuff to balance up the scales, that is a rejection of God's way of bringing the balance about. And while I continue to try and do it in my own strength and try and balance those scales by Michael being a better fella, I'm still rejecting God. Still rejecting God's righteousness. I'm trying to live by whose righteousness? Michael's righteousness. Whereas God wants me to live by his righteousness. And so every time I try to, do, try to balance those scales by doing more and more good, I'm putting more and more screws holding this side down to the floor. What we need is someone to rip those screws up out of the floor and bring those scales back into balance. And when Jesus burst forth from the grave, it was like him bursting forth those screws that hold that balance out of check. On this attitude of trying to live by legalism, keeping rules and doing the right thing. Paul says this, 
talking about the Jews again, he says, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, okay, so that's what I'm talking about here, we're trying to establish our own righteousness because we don't know God's righteousness, he says they did not submit to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is not gained by doing good. God's righteousness is a righteousness that comes through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. No good deed can make up for the bad. If you, if you break one law, it's like you've broken the whole of the law. So if I go and rob a bank and I get caught and I'm up before the judge and the judge says, hmm, Michael, you're charged with robbing the bank. And have you, have you got any evidence against this? Or what's, your, what's your defence? And I say, well, I deliver meals on wheels on, on Thursdays and, and um, yes, and I go and visit the old folk at Warrawee and do stuff. He's not interested in that, is he? I've still broken the law. I've still robbed the bank. There's no balancing up by doing a few good things. In my daily Bible readings, I'm currently reading Leviticus. Has anyone here read Leviticus? Put your hand up if you've read Leviticus. Put your hand up now if you've, if you've cut out verses from Leviticus and, and um, stuck them up on your fridge and memorised them because you just love them so much. Anybody? <laughs> it's hard going. It's hard going. But you know what? It's striking me as I read Leviticus. Like sometimes it just seems like a, a great big list of ceremonial rules and regulations. See, it was written to the Levites, who were the priests of the day, who were to go into the tabernacle and, and be, be there ministering before God. But the picture that it paints is this. God is holy and we are not. That, that's all we need to really get from Leviticus. God is holy and we are not. And it's all about, Leviticus is all about trying to get pure enough to come into the presence of God. And they have to do all of this great merigmarole to try and get pure enough to come before God. God is unapproachable when we are in a sinful state. God's standards are so high. God's standards are so unachievable. Not one of us can keep God's standards. There's only one who ever could. And of course, we're celebrating his resurrection today. The only way to try and live by the law is for us to try and lower the bar. For us to try and make our own standard. If I try to live by rules and regulations, I'm just going to tie myself up in knots and I'm going to start living with a false hope. But most people who do try to live by rules and regulations just lower the bar and go, well, by my standards, I'm a pretty good guy and I'll, I'll be right, I'll get to heaven. That's a hope. That's a false hope. And as people lower the bar often they try to make their own image of God. Some people feel that God is unapproachable. 
So who can go up to heaven to see him? If only God could come down to us. If only God could be lowered and, and meet with us. Well, guess what? He did. In the person of Jesus Christ. God came to dwell among us. And of course, we all responded and worshipped him because of it, didn't we? No. We crucified him. It's very easy for us to say they crucified him. But I tell you what, if Jesus came today, we would have crucified him. And I say that to my shame. Because I know what humans are like. I know what I'm like. We, as members of the human race, were the ones who rejected Jesus. Jesus came and lived as one of us. God is not unapproachable any longer. He once was unapproachable, as we saw in Leviticus. But Jesus Christ came to us and he lived as one of us and he is not unapproachable any longer. And of course Jesus was crucified and died. And many people will say today that that was it. They'll say that Jesus is still dead. But I'm here today to tell you that he's not. And that's why we're together here on Easter Sunday. So what does a real saving faith look like? Well, it starts out with the true God and it submits to him and his righteousness. It's no good me trying to produce my own righteousness. It's no good you trying to produce your, your own righteousness. It's no good trying to produce our own image of a God that suits us and saying, right, well, well this is the way I like to think that God is and I'm going to worship him. That's just a lie. Forget about it. What does a real saving faith look like? Where can true hope be found? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is near. Now that's telling me that it's not going to be hard to find. How near is it? Where's the true hope? Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The kingdom's near and there it is. A real saving faith is something you believe and something that you say. You can say it and not believe it. There are many people in churches even today who have been in churches since they were in nappies and they'll still be in church when they're in incontinence pads and some of these will sing it and say it and recite it every Sunday. But unless you believe it, unless you believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead, they're just empty words. We used to have a budgie before my dad sat on it. And we could teach it all sorts of things. And it would sit there talking away. I know one day we taught it that God is love. Um, But we also taught it, where's Jim? That's my dad. Um, But then it got confused and it said, God is Jim. And we thought we'd better stop teaching it Bible stuff. 
We could have easily taught that budgie to say, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. And some of us can be like budgies and say it, but do we believe it in our heart? What do you believe? What do Christians believe? We believe that God raised Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the dead. That's why we're here on this Easter Sunday. That's why we worship together on a Sunday instead of the Sabbath. It became known as the Lord's Day because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The power of God is greater than death. Our Heavenly Father demonstrated his power over death by raising his son to life. And you might say to me, Michael, why are you so confident in the resurrection of Christians? Why are you so confident that, that you will be raised from the dead? And I can say to you with all confidence, it's because God's already done it. He's already raised Jesus. He's the first and he will raise us also. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is what we believe. If you ever hear somebody who professes to be a Christian suggest that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or suggest to you that it's not important whether he did or not, they're not a Christian. I know that sounds blunt and judgmental, but it's true. And I tell you this truth because I love you. I don't want you to ever get caught following false hopes. Christians believe in a live Christ. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an optional extra. The resurrection goes to the very core of the Christian faith. And it is a lack of faith which says it doesn't matter whether we raised from the dead or not. 1984, David Jenkins an Anglic, was an Anglican priest who preached that neither the virgin birth nor the resurrection was necessary to be taken literally. And there's a lot of church leaders who are like that. Well, this fellow was consecrated as a bishop of Durham. Less than three days later, his cathedral was struck by lightning and greatly damaged by fire. True story. Coincidence. Well, you can decide for yourself. Verse 10 says... It is with your heart that you believe and are justified. What do we believe? What do we believe in our hearts? That God raised Jesus from the dead. And it is by believing that in our hearts that we are justified. And and that is what makes God approachable. Our sins are taken away. God says justified. That's the taking away of our sins so that we can approach God. And then it says, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We can tend to be very private people. 
and we get the first part pretty pretty right, isn't it? Okay, it's with our, what we believe in our heart that matters. And you wouldn't believe the number of commentaries that I've read that try to explain away the next part that says, and if you confess with your mouth, then you will be saved. And say, no, 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 it's actually, that's actually just, just, just what comes out of what you believe. No, it's actually, the Bible's very clear. It's an integral part. What you believe must overflow out of your mouth. What do we confess about Jesus Christ? What are we saying with our mouth? We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of everything. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord over my life. He's Lord over every spirit and power. Jesus is Lord over the grave. And you cannot confess that Jesus is Lord over the grave unless you believe that he, in your heart that he is raised from the dead. Friends, this is dangerous stuff. He got all but one of the disciples killed. To preach that Jesus is Lord and to proclaim that he is raised from the dead is subversive to our culture. It challenges our self-centred ways. It challenges our worldly living. It challenges my own sense of of self-sufficiency. It challenges my own sense of, of determining my own destiny. It points to the truth. It uncovers the lie. It is an exclusive claim that will earn the ire of every person who worships the idol of tolerance. Jesus is alive. The resurrection is real. The cornerstone of our faith is not a carcass in the dirt, but a living God who calls us to faith, a saviour who demands a response, and a Lord who commands our acknowledgement with our mouth. Jesus is alive. Don't keep that to yourself. Share it. Proclaim it. Believe it. Happy Easter, everyone. Jesus is alive. Jesus is Lord. Christ is risen. (laughs) I've just decided I'm going to start something new. Anybody have any questions? How do you get over your fear of going out and telling other people that Jesus is alive? You make that the most important, most joyous thing in all your life. I know times I might have got a new car. I got a new car. I haven't, by the way. And I'm really excited about my new car. And I just naturally want people to talk about my new car. And I say, oh, I've got a new car, you know. Oh, really? Let's talk about it. If Jesus is the most important thing in my life, if if Jesus is the most exciting thing that's happening in my life, I want to talk about it. 
And I've actually just been thinking more and more about when Jesus said, go out in the world, he said, tell them that the kingdom of heaven is near. It might just be a matter of saying to that person that you feel God saying to speak to you, say, I feel God's telling me to tell you the kingdom of heaven's near. And see what happens. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. Um, we've got a rainwater tank at home. We bought the house a few months ago. It only had about that much water in it. And it's taken a long time for it to fill up. But now it's full. So every time it rains, what happens? It overflows. Now, what, what, what comes out of it? What sort of rainwater? Lovely, clean rainwater comes out of it because it's full of lovely, clean rainwater. Now, your mouth is the overflow of the heart. If you find that foul language is coming out of your mouth, what's that saying about what's in your heart? Foulness. Okay? If praises for God are coming out of your mouth, if, if the wonders of what Jesus Christ has done is coming out of your mouth, what's that saying about what's in your heart? What's your heart full of? Love, faith. It's full of Jesus. Fill your heart up with Jesus and there's the overflow point. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. Any other questions? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that you are a powerful God. We know that it is your power that raised Jesus from the dead. And Lord, all glory be to you. Lord, fill our hearts up with a love for you. Fill us to overflowing, Lord. Let our mouths proclaim your praise. Let our mouths proclaim your righteousness. Let our mouths proclaim about the resurrection. Let our mouths proclaim that you are Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.